I'm Lior Phillips, host of This Must Be The Gig. We're a weekly podcast that documents everything about the world of live music. Speaking with choreographers, costume and set designers, the people who run beloved venues and festivals, and, of course, speaking with musicians about that one gig that changed their lives. Get your peek behind the curtain at consequenceofsound.net, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Consequence Podcast Network. Hello and happy New Year's Eve. This is Jen and I'm breaking in early to let you know about the episode you're about to listen to. This year we were honored to be included in 2020 Salem Horror Fest and we are dropping the audio for our episode on PTSD as we see it in Halloween H2O and Halloween from 2018. Um, We really enjoyed having this conversation and looking at one of my favorite characters, Laurie Strode, and we are so excited to share this with you. This is an audio of our virtually live episode from Salem Horror Fest. So that's why it sounds a little different than our normal episodes. But we had so much fun with it. We were so excited to get to present it. And we are excited for you to finally listen. We hope you are having a wonderful and restful holiday season. And we will see you in January with our first episode on depression as we see it in the Babadook. So so excited for that. And for now, Happy New Year. The Psychoanalysis Podcast explores the ways that horror movies examine mental health issues. It deals with mature and sometimes disturbing subject matter, and it may not be suitable for all listeners. It is meant for entertainment purposes only, and not as a substitute for proper therapy. If you or a loved one are currently experiencing mental health difficulties, please contact your local mental health center. Breathe in. Breathe out. Breathe in. Breathe out. Breathe in. Breathe out. This is Psychoanalysis. You've heard the story. Who hasn't? Michael Myers. Wasn't it her brother who murdered all those babysitters? How'd he do that? With a really big kitchen knife. Come on! This is Psychoanalysis, a horror therapy podcast analyzing the horror genre through the lens of mental health. Hello, Salem Horror Fest. Hi there. Boy, howdy. So happy to be here. Hey. New to our show, each month we look at a particular topic in the mental health world and pair it with a movie or two that we think gives an interesting and relevant portrayal. I am Jen Adams. I'm a writer and horror lover, and two years ago I was diagnosed with PTSD. I talk and write a lot about my experiences with therapy and mental illness. I'm Mike Snoonian. I am a therapist as well as a school adjustment counselor. And I watch a lot of horror movies and write a lot about horror and mental health. Which I love. And I am Lara Unterstall. I'm a horror fan and filmmaker. I'm super passionate about destigmatizing mental health because of my own experiences. 
with anxiety, depression, and PTSD. Um, Jen and I both have PTSD, which makes us super cool. That's right. I'm sorry. I'm we're, we're, we're trying to fist bump via That's Zoom. right. Virtual yeah. fist bump. Yeah. Because it looks like we're punching the viewers. <laughs> yeah. We're just, just <laughs> right. Uh, we need 3D, man. Smell yes. um, <laughs> a vision. That's right. It's just not <laughs> in the budget. I know, man. Not this year. Next Some. year. <laughs> uh, so this month we're looking at post-traumatic stress syndrome. I'm sorry, post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD. That's what that D is for <laughs> and how it manifests in the story of one of our favorite final girls, Laurie Strode. I love her so much. I can't wait to talk about her. I have her um, right here. There's Laurie a Strode action figure. Mini uh, she's, <laughs> she doesn't have the cut on her arm, but you know, she, this is right before shit went down, I assume, so. Oh, nice. It looks or a she, bit like Rosie the Riveter. Yeah, it's not a great likeness. <laughs> well, you know, I guess it's, we do what we can. Oh, yeah, we do what we can. <laughs> um, so we're going to be comparing how PTSD is represented in 1998's Halloween H2O, 20 years later, and 2018's Halloween Legacy sequel or remake or reboot or recalibration. So we're going to look at both of those movies and talk about how we see PTSD represented and kind of compare and contrast. Yeah, I'm really excited to have this conversation. I think doing this made me appreciate both movies more. So. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And we're going to talk about how we feel about the movies, but I feel like there's not one that I prefer. There's a lot of good that I see in both. And I don't know if either one hits it hundred percent, but we're going to kind of, kind of explore a lot of that in this episode, because we're going to be discussing Laurie's arc in these two movies. We're going to be talking about the entire story, including the end. So here is your spoiler warning, spoiler warning. Movies, or if you just haven't seen them in a while, we're going to give a little synopsis of the events of both films. What's really funny I was like, who would it receive these or remember them? I watched the commentary last night for H2O with Jamie Lee Curtis on it. And she remembers almost like nothing from the movie and refused to watch it because really? she would just like peek behind her hand and be like, too scary, won't watch. So Really? That's so yeah. funny. <laughs> so. Yeah, it's like I, I remember like the moments that I really connect to and then but then a lot of the details I mm -hmm. miss like I didn't realize how many times she says um, do as I say in both of those movies and partly just because I've been watching the original a lot recently but it's it's funny I feel like I know like H2O like the back of my hand and mm -hmm. turns out. Not so much. Anyways. All right. So I'm going to read my synopsis of Halloween H2O. Mr. This movie opens with Nurse Marion, the late Dr. Loomis's caretaker. Her house has been broken into and her study ransacked. After receiving some substandard help from Jen's first crush of the movie, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, she is murdered by none other than Michael Myers. Laurie awakens, screaming from a dream where she is once again, is once again attacked by Michael in the closet. We learn she is the headmistress of a California boarding school with a new name, having faked her death years earlier. Though she has attempted to move on, she is clearly still suffering, abusing alcohol and keeping an overly close watch on her 17-year-old son, John, Jen's main movie crush. John, his girlfriend Molly, and their two insufferable friends decide to skip a school trip to Yosemite for a private Halloween party in the school's basement. However, Michael, having stolen an on-the-nose creepy vehicle, has found the school. 
While Laurie has a secret date with the school's guidance counselor, Will, and begins to tell him the truth about her past, John's friends are attacked and killed by Michael. John and Molly barely escape as Laurie comes face to face with her brother for the first time since he tried to murder her 20 years ago. John, Molly, and Laurie escape, Will having been murdered after accidentally killing Jen's third movie crush, LL Cool J, the security guard. Don't worry, he's okay. But Laurie realizes that this is her chance to stop running. <clears throat> she sends John and Molly to get help, grabs an awesome axe, and turns to hunt down Michael. Michael! <laughs> Love that moment. After a brutal fight, she's able to stab Michael and push him over a balcony ledge, seemingly killing him. However, Laurie is skeptical because she's seen the first two movies. She hijacks the van containing Michael's body and, in a crash that awesomely defies logic and physics, pins him between a tree and the crashed van. After a brief moment of pity, she decapitates him, destroying the source of her trauma for good. Or killing an innocent emergency worker. I know, I hadn't seen Resurrection and I found that out and I was like, no, don't do that to Laura. I can't, this, this, whole, this whole timeline, I can't, I just, I just refuse yes. to acknowledge it, most of it. I know. <laughs> I, I like to kind of think that this ends this one train. And yes, the, exactly. The, yeah, there's like no more the, trains the, allowed. After yeah, that point. you right. and everyone that wasn't named Mustafa Akkad at the time would have liked to have said <laughs> that would be the right way to go out. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, I no. am going to cover uh, Halloween 2018, which I'm probably going to call H18 over the course of this episode just to keep it nice and succinct. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, get get ready, strap in for this fucking get excellent synopsis that I'm about to read. Oh yes, get sip on your in. sip on your cocoa or uh, whatever it might be in your mouth. <laughs> just don't, don't actually don't drink this. I won't. <laughs> Alrighty. So in, the, in this installment of Halloween Enter the Multiverse, Michael Myers is not Laurie's brother, and the events of Halloween 2 never occurred. Instead, Michael Myers was somehow captured after terrorizing Laurie and killing her friends, and has spent the last 40 years rotting silently in Smith's Grove Psychiatric Hospital, under the care of Dr. Loomis's vaguely European protege, Dr. Sartain. Sartain. I almost said Sartain. I, I was going to say Sartain. Sartain. I just call him New Loomis, too. So. Yes. Loomis Jr. Yeah. Also, uh, ethically questionable practices. Despite Very. his capture, Michael Myers is still the defining force in Lori's life. She lives on a prepper compound and has a touch-and-go relationship with her adult daughter, Karen, who spent the first 12 years of her life learning to shoot guns and prepare for the worst, as well as her slightly more sympathetic granddaughter, Allison. Lori isn't doing so hot. Her trauma has made her paranoid. Her daughter hates her. And as the movie slowly reveals, she has only one wish to kill Michael Myers once and for all. <laughs> Sorry, I lost my voice. <laughs> because, because of some plot point that definitely makes sense, Michael is transferred out of Smith's Grove on a prison bus and escapes just in time for Halloween 2018. He goes on a classic Michael killing spree through suburban Illinois, seemingly on the hunt for Lori and anyone who stands in his way. It's just a good thing that Lori has, a, has Waco levels of guns and a hidden panic room back at her compound. Uh, after a bunch of drama involving slain babysitters and Dr. Sartain killing a cop, Lori and the Strode women face off with Michael on the home front. Back at Lori's compound, Michael quickly kills Karen's husband, and it's just us gals for the end who finally trap Michael in the panic room before blowing up the entire damn house. In the end, Michael Myers is definitely dead, right? I guess we'll find out. 
There's a few more movies. There's a lot more money to be made, so. Oh, yeah. Don't worry. He ain't dead. That motherfucker don't die. He's a cash cow. Lori cut his head off 20 years ago, so. I know. know. It's confusing, to be honest. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, and that's one of the, the, I loved um, H2O because it does have that definite ending and my heart broke a little bit when I learned what happens in resurrection. Um, but I also can kind of let that stuff go. I'm like, okay, it's fun to watch Michael. If you do it well, I'm down. You get to pick and choose what you really want to internalize from this franchise. (laughs) That's true. And there are lots of different options. Yeah. Um, so let's move into our feelings check-in. Um, and a feelings check-in is something we do where we just talk about how we feel when we watch these movies. We think it's really important to identify emotions as we feel them because it's really easy to ignore or misidentify or just repress emotions. So, um, Mike, what was your first experience with these movies and how do they make you feel? So H2O, both would have been theatrical and H2O, if not opening night, it would have been like really close to it. Um, It would have been the first Halloween that I was able to go see in the theaters, which I probably had seen Halloween two more times than I can count um, just how often it played like on local television. And I had seen all of them before that, but I was really excited for a new one. And it felt like an event. Like I just remember at the time, like every trade magazine, not just horror magazines, but every entertainment magazine was using that photo of Michael and Laurie peering at one another through the glass door, uh, through the little window. Uh, And it was like, you know, Jamie Lee Curtis's return to horror after so long. Um, Scream obviously was huge, like Scream 1 and Scream 2 had come out. Um, I always, I still know what you did last summer had come out. So we're right in the middle of this like slasher revival. Um, And yeah, like, I have mixed feelings about the movie overall, but I do, I'd be an absolute liar if I didn't say like the theater went, didn't go bananas at the end of the movie when she cuts off his head. Um, So that would have been my experience seeing H2O uh, and then, or, you know, Dawson's Creek with a little bit of Michael Myers in it. Um, (laughs) Halloween 2018 or, you know, Hollow Green as our friends at Halloweenies call it. this is one I think everyone was really excited for, given Blumhouse's track record, uh, given the fact that like a lot of the iconic horror villains of the 80s all of a sudden were stuck in some sort of creative limbo. And I think everybody was afraid that the last take of Michael Myers we were going to get were going to be the two Rob Zombie movies. Um, although I'm an apologist for H2. Uh, we can talk about that another day. Um, I, I like the I adore that movie and do not really care for the first one. I'm one of those weirdos. Um, But this felt like another big event. As a matter of fact, I remember it seemed like everyone got to see it before me because it played like every single festival leading up to its release, it seemed like. And like everyone had a chance to see it and weigh in. And I'm like, I'm trying to avoid everything I can in terms of like spoilers or news about the movie. I just want to go see it. I do remember the first day that Carpenter's first track, like I think the shape returns dropped, um, like playing that over and over again and getting like super excited for it. Um, so yeah, like in it, you know, like I think I've, I've come like the more I've watched it, the more quibbles I have with the movie. And I think we'll get into them a bit. Like there are definitely some issues with it. Um, but I will not lie, like, I enjoyed the fuck out of this movie, like, the first time I saw it. Nice. Very Laura, cool. what about you? 
Yeah, let's see. Um, so this was actually my first time watching H2O. I had somehow completely missed the boat. I have no memory of it being in theaters. Um, like I was very aware of sc the screams and I know what you did last summers, but I think it took me a little later in life to like catch up with the H2O, or the, <laughs> the Halloween franchise. Um, so therefore I can give you my fresh feelings. They're super fresh, hot off the presses. Uh, it made me feel extremely late 90s. <laughs> Maybe not as much as the first two Scream movies, but big late 90s energy. I mean, Creed plays over the end credits. <laughs> That's all I have to say about that. Um, and I, you know, I found it, especially watching it now for the first time uh, in like the, my mid-30s, it was pretty cheesy and kind of poorly crafted, but I did like it and I really liked the story for Lori. Uh, it left me feeling oddly empowered. You know, if I'm thinking about these two movies from the perspective of someone with her own trauma issues uh, and, and like big time anxiety, this telling did way more for me in terms of Lori's arc. Um, mm. As far as H18 goes, I did see this in theaters in 2018, pretty much right when it came out. Um, I also didn't get to see any screeners or festival stuff, but you know, I was just one of the proletariat one of the, the grubby unwashed masses. <laughs> I, I felt pretty meh about it then and I feel pretty meh about it now to be honest. I think it's well crafted but I found it really boring. Um, the few good scares and gore moments don't really like make up for like what it just feels kind of like a lackluster look back at the franchise. Even watching it again I was just kind of like found myself reaching for my phone a lot and I just could not like really engage with it. I think that there, it has its good moments and I think like I said it's really really well crafted. Um, I just thought like a lot of poor storytelling decisions and not a lot of like creative energy. Um, main thing I really love about it is Danny McBride's dialogue but otherwise like just didn't do it for me. I am glad we're examining it through this lens of Lori's story arc because, you know, in preparation for this, I've been watching, I watched Halloween 1 and Halloween 2, um, mainly focusing on Lori's journey and doing so allowed me to, I think, to get way more out of it than I did initially because I was analyzing it. Um, basically, my final thought is that if the basic story of H2O was given the craft performances and dialogue of H18, that would be a worthy successor. To the original two films. Yeah. I don't really remember the first time that I saw H2O, although I imagine I probably saw it in theaters. I would have been in high school. And I used to go to movies all the time when I was in high school. And I think that's probably why I don't have memories of some of them. But this was the first Halloween movie I'd ever seen. And I was always kind of really afraid of my, of like the slashers, you know, which is funny because now those are like one of my favorite subgenres. Um, and it wasn't until Scream that I think I really fell in love with them. Um, so I watched this and I just loved it. I, I brought the VHS with me to college and I watched this all the time. Um, I love it. I can wreck it. Like when I look at it with a really critical lens, I can see a lot of the flaws and a lot of the nineties. Um, but I think there's so much nostalgia for me with it that, that, that doesn't really bother me. Also like now I'm usually watching it in the background. So that kind of stuff just kind of glides over me. Um, and also Josh Hartnett makes up for like at least 50% of the flaws, even with that messy haircut, he is one of my top, um, movie crushes. And I, and this was the movie where I fell in love with him and then it got serious with the faculty. Um, he does wear but, a sweater. He wears a very 90s sweater. He does, yeah. I was distracted by the little necklaces, the, like little ball necklaces. Those are just... Oh, I knew so many of those guys in high school. Yeah, it was just, that was such the look of that era. And I hate it. I hate it so much. <laughs> I, I think I was more distracted by his beautiful face. 
um, and just overall hotness. Um, but anyways, um, and as I mentioned, there's also um, Joseph Gordon-Levitt and Ella Cool J in this movie. So this was like gin Halloween candy for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's I've been big... watching this a lot recently. Like it's becoming one of my go-to comfort movies. I could um, see that. I, I mean, I did, I did oh. find it like weirdly like fun and comforting despite its mm-hmm. many flaws, but it's, it's just, it's fun. It's, it's a fun, I like it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It doesn't take itself super seriously. And yeah. I do love the ending, which I've got a lot of thoughts about. Um, and then I watched, um, um, Halloween. I always called it New Halloween, um, but like we, we all have names for it. <laughs> and that's well. I have a whole soapbox about what you name your sequels or remakes, but that's maybe for another day. Um, follow me on Twitter if you want to hear me rant about that. Um, but so we went to see this on opening night, um, and. I remember being terrified to go see it because I was afraid it was going to be really brutal. Um, and it was, it wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be, but um, there's a lot that I really love about it. There's a lot that I don't really like. I tend, I don't care so much about the story. That's not something that really bothers me. Um, what I love is that this is, there's a matriarchy in this movie, which is so rare to see. And it's yeah. led by like my beloved Laurie Strode. Um, and so that, is, that kind of redeems a lot of it for me. I don't, of the two, I prefer H2O, um, but there's a lot of empowerment here. The gotcha moment makes me cry and cheer every time. I can kind of let go of some of the things that it took to get there, but I just, I love that moment so much. I do love that aspect of it. Mm-hmm. And that's like, and I like how it ends on the shot of the three of them, you know, it's, mm-hmm. I do appreciate yeah. that about it. Yeah. And I like it. I think I like it more every time I watch it more because I just kind of like, okay, here's the part that I don't love. And I just kind of mm-hmm. let that gloss pass to me, you know? Um, but so we're, the reason we're talking about both of these movies is because we have Laurie who suffered this trauma in, um, 1978 when Michael Myers attacked her for the first time. And I think it's a really interesting portrayal of two different manifestations of PTSD. Um, and so now we're going to kind of move away from Halloween for just a minute. And we're going to talk about what PTSD is, because I feel like there's a lot of misconceptions and maybe misunderstandings about what it is and how it manifests. So Mike, can you tell us a little bit about what PTSD is? Sure. So it can apply to basically anyone. It is about if basically if you're exposed to a traumatic event and these events can either be life-threatening, it could be the threat of death. It could be a natural disaster like a hurricane, flood, tornado, uh, obviously things like assaults, um, serious injuries, or sexual assaults. All of those could fall under the umbrella of what could trigger post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, combat veterans, you know, what, we, we, what we would call, say, shell-shocked back in the 1970s or, or even before that, combat veterans in particular are in danger for... Um, suffering from PTSD. Um, Exposure to an event basically means it's happened directly to you or that you bore witness to it happening to somebody else. Um, And we're gonna talk a little bit about how it can manifest itself just from hearing about these events um, happen to a close friend or a loved one. People that are repeatedly exposed to trauma run a very high risk for PTSD. I mentioned combat veterans. Think also about like first responders uh, and EMT workers as well. EMT workers as well. They're often 
at risk for suffering the effects of post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, what the symptoms are of it, they obviously, they can vary, uh, but you'll see at least one of the following, like recurrent and inv involuntary distressing memories of the events, like they just basically happen to you. They happen over and over again, and they happen when you're least aware of them, like you're not aware they're coming in, they're involuntary. Uh, recurrent dreams that are related to the event. Uh, also flashbacks. Uh, it feels like you're in the middle of that event happening to you again. Um, the phrase trigger warning, I think gets used a lot now. Um, unfortunately, sometimes it gets used as a punchline uh, by some that maybe don't quite understand what it actually is, but intense distress cues or triggers that relate to the event um, are also can also be a part of post-traumatic distress order as well. I like that you're talking about um, triggers and secondary victims, because that's something that I think is very interesting. The more that I watch this, especially when I'm specifically looking for things that either mm -hmm. I've experienced or um, knowing that we were going to be talking about it, because I think one of the things that both of these movies do really well is present um, Laurie's children as secondary victims and just mm -hmm. see the way that that relationship kind of comes out. And that's something we'll talk about when we get more to talking about the movies. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's, that's all great. And if you want to hear more details on PTSD, uh, we have talked about it in some of our past episodes. Um, they should both be available now. You can go back and listen to Invisible Man, which is mainly focused on toxic and abusive relationships, but we do get heavily into PTSD and treatments for it in that episode, as well as our episode on the descent. Those should both be live now in our, uh, in our podcast feed. You can find us Spotify, um, iTunes, wherever you normally find podcasts if you want to hear more of our thoughts on PTSD. Yeah. Um, and so I kind of, I feel like jumped the gun a little bit, but now um, let's talk about how we see these things in these movies and why we wanted to talk about these. Um, and so I guess we talked about triggers. Um, so maybe we could start with some of the triggers we see Laurie experience. Um, I think Halloween in general is going to yeah. be a trigger for That's her. That's her big thing really is the date, the anniversary, mm. the fact, the whole, everything surrounding the holiday from kids running in the streets to pumpkins to you name it. Yeah. And I found myself really annoyed that nobody in either movie seemed to really, um, care about that you know and i don't know if that's the right word to use but like you know that this is going to be a trigger probably for the rest of her life probably no matter how much help she gets and how much she like can manage her symptoms halloween is always going to be a big trigger for her and i found myself bothered that um that nobody seemed to really prepare for that you know yeah, I, I agree. I feel like uh, even when you know it's an, an important anniversary for somebody, like the anniversary of losing a loved one or something, something a little even less dramatic than what Lori is dealing with, you sort of, oh, this is a bad day for you. I'm going to give you some space. And people just seemed completely oblivious to it in both betrayals. Like, be a little sensitive. I get that in, especially in the 2018 version, she is overbearing. Uh, and it's in a, we're sort of seeing the lifetime of exasperation toward her. But it's like, Give her this one day. <laughs> like, well, on. I think that is part of it too. I think like Judy Greer's character has been traumatized herself and she has a lot of anger towards mom, towards Lori. And this, so I think that makes it much more difficult for her to let it go because yeah. she's so 
I mean, she was someone that was removed from her home and, um, you know, that's obviously a traumatic, traumatizing event of itself. Like she was exposed to things that at her age, she never should have seen. And she probably heard things that she never should have heard at her age. So I can see where that might be difficult for her to give that space. In the case of um, H2O, like my understanding of it is like the um, guidance counselor boyfriend doesn't really know that Halloween is super bad for her. Like she's obviously changed her name she's changed her identity. So there's nothing there that would really give him that kind of warning That's that true. something is wrong. And the son, I think, you know, he's 17 years old and he's had yeah. to live with this his whole life. And um, he's had to deal, and we're going to talk about this when we talk about secondary trauma a bit, but that kind of parent-child um, relationship has reversed itself yeah. in a lot of ways. So and you're 17 years old, like you're just not equipped yet to really deal with that. So you can kind of understand why. And she even says like, just give me this one day. Um, it would be very interesting to see the days or weeks leading up to H2O to see what she's like. Because my reading of the movie is that like, this is a 24 hour day, seven day a week way that she is. It's not like October rolls around and October 31st gets closer and she's like, then she starts like kind of really perseverating on the holiday. It's more like, this is what it's like to be around her. It's just like the amps are turned to 11 once you get to Halloween. Yeah. And that's one thing, like as, as frustrated as I do get with John and Karen, um, we, there's 20 years that we don't see and then 40 years that we don't mm -hmm. see. And so it could be that in all of the Halloweens leading up to this, they have been like really like putting on kid gloves and trying to like really be aware and that she has pushed that away. And so, I mean, I don't, as I brought it up, but I don't know how fair it is to really judge them. I think that's just kind of what stands out to me. And I'm also glad that you said that about like the, the trigger, because it's not like it, it when you know that a trigger is coming, like I know where Halloween is and I know that there's going to be a specific date that triggers me. And I know that date exists all year long. And so sometimes if I see someone or like if my husband will try to like manage my trigger or like kind of provide me a little space, if I see that and I'm already tiny bit triggered, I get frustrated and mm -hmm. like, it's like the trigger, I like how you said turn up to 11. It's like the trigger happens and you know, well, it's always there. And then it just, and if you don't catch it before, then sometimes it just, your, your reaction is going to be pushing someone away. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times I know that he will take that personally, even though he knows that it's not personal. It's just, that's a reaction that human beings have. So, you know, so I'll, I'll let it go, but I do think it's, it's interesting. I also think H2O kind of represents an understanding of PTSD from 20 years ago. Oh yeah. And there's a lot of like, why aren't you over this that I see in that one that I don't necessarily see in new Halloween. Although mm -hmm. I don't think we see it. The language is different, right? It's like mm -hmm. in, in H2O, it's like, it's time to move on mom. And in H18, it's like, she needs cognitive behavioral therapy. She's a basket case. She just hasn't dealt with her issues. There's like an awareness that this is not an easy thing to deal with, but you're still just as frustrated and want her to get over it just as right. much. Yeah. And so one of the other things that triggers her is when she realizes that John is 17, because that was the year 
that she um, was attacked herself. And I wanted to mention that because it's a, probably a pretty small trigger, but that's something that I've noticed in my, that triggers me because a lot of like, when I think about some of the trauma, the emotional trauma that I had as a kid, it was when I was around eight. That's kind of the age I, I like have triangulated to. And my daughter is eight right now. And so that has been something that I've noticed kind of like, I project a lot of my feelings onto things that she does. And I get, I've gotten really kind of upset. And that was something that I didn't necessarily see before I watched it last night. I was like, oh, well, yeah, she's really putting herself in John's shoes. And that's, that's going to be a trigger for her. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you kind of, especially as a parent, probably feel a great sense of responsibility. Mm -hmm. There was a really loud motorcycle just That's outside right. of my apartment. There, okay. She feels a really, a really strong sense of responsibility to be like, I can't let this happen to him. This, is, this was where my life went off the rails. Like, if we can just get past this age, maybe he'll be safe. And that's that kind of like, you know, sort of magic, almost magical thinking that comes with trauma. I think sometimes as you start mm -hmm. to, you know, you you seek control for with some of these yeah. things. So I think like hypervigilance is the key in both of these movies. Like Lori is hypervigilant to everything around her and controlling. Like yes. you said, like if she can like if she can manage every single variable, it would be okay. And I think as we know, like there's just like it's impossible for us to manage every single variable in life. And part of developing resiliency and part of being able to go out and face the world is being able to like look at the variables and have a plan on how to deal with them or not let them control us. Exactly, yeah, in both of these movies, she's basically behind locked gates in mm -hmm. a home or an estate that's kind of like a, a world she's made for herself and for mm -hmm. her, potentially for her children, so. Yeah. Well, and she shows up to, in New Halloween, she shows up to watch him being transferred. Um, and I, now that we're talking about control, like she's, she's trying to have, like her presence will make sure that goes okay, mm -hmm. which is a level of control that she doesn't really have, but she's trying to get something. And of course that's a big trigger for her too. And that's actually one of my favorite moments because that's just her real reaction to seeing her attacker for the first time in probably 40 years, maybe 35 given. Yeah. Numbers. And, but, and, and, uh, that's a really great moment of performance from Jamie Lee Curtis in that moment. I think it's, that's where like the acting in H18 feels much more organic and realistic mm -hmm. versus H2O, even though, um, I, I think that they were aiming for a more right. realistic portrayal of PTSD in, mm -hmm. in H18. However, it also is, some it's like weird it's like i can't put my finger on it like which one is actually more cartoonish and like which one is more of a stereotype like in this she's literally got like a prepper compound i think that like i personally know several people who have trauma you know that they're dealing with one person in particular who has very bad ptsd but is very successful he would never know mm -hmm. it you know that's what i said that laurie in h18 is more messy in oh. h2o she's more like hiding it you know mm -hmm. um and i think that uh, at least for the people I know, like in their professional lives, like you would just never know. So it's it's just, I'm not sure which portrayal seen, ends up being better. I've seen both. Like I've seen both mm -hmm. um, occur like in, in practice. Like there's definitely not. So both I think offer 
you know, when people say, well, which one is more realistic? The answer kind of is both. Like you can see it happen. I think the difference is in H2O, Jamie Lee Curtis gives a really great performance playing Jamie Lee Curtis. Like she doesn't feel like Laurie Strode. She yes. feels like herself. Yeah, um, you're right. I completely and, agree with that. You know, it's not when, like Lori. Right. When she says to Josh Hartnett, um, it's John, right? Is that John? Yeah, John. Okay. When she John. says, like, you get your smart mouth from my side of the family, I'm like, I'm trying to think about, like, sassy, uh, like, did she do a Freaky Friday switch with Anne at some point? Yes, exactly. Because Lori was very, like, restrained you know? down yeah. yeah so it's kind of like you know like she is playing herself and she's having a grand old time doing it where um in halloween 2018 like it feels a lot more like the authentic laurie strode like that feels much more like the character far more weathered than what you in what you saw her in 1978 so and she was a Girl Scout, so she was always prepared, and you see yes. that in the... Now, I think if we, like, opened up the news and read about Lori's compound, we'd be like, well, that's troubling. <laughs> uh, like, yeah. That child should definitely be removed. But here, we kind of root for it because we love the character so much. And, and we know, because we're in the realm of horror, that the threat is real, and she mm -hmm. was right to behave this way because right. Michael Myers is a supernatural, who the hell knows, zombie man that just doesn't die, so... Uh, yeah. And that's kind of the thing that bugs me about 2018's Halloween. Um, and this is my personal feelings. And it's kind of like what Mike, you were saying, like, there's no right depiction in either movie. There's a little bit of both good and bad. But what I love about H2O is I feel like she really was trying to move on with her life. Um, a new life, created a new life for herself, but that she was trying to get past it. And I feel like in new Halloween, I feel like she was just waiting to get that revenge or waiting to like get that power back. And as like what we were saying is like, yeah, he is a supernatural being and he would, he, we know he's coming back because there's a new movie. But like, if I look at it in terms of like, my trauma, like my husband, my first husband is probably not coming back. Like that's, that's something that's just not really realistic. And so if I were to spend every day waiting or trying to hunt him down and trying to like get revenge, like I just, I, I don't want to live that life, you know? And I think what I think bugs me the most about Halloween 2018 is that it reinforces that she was right to not try to move on and to spend all of her time preparing. And I mean, I'm not saying don't prepare at all, like take self-defense classes and like put a like awesome alarm system on your house or something. But it, it seems to me that she, like she doesn't have anything else in her life. Yeah. And I think that just makes me really sad for her character in a way that I don't see in H2O. I yeah. think because it wipes out everything that happened after the first movie and you know, we talked about this in our comfort episode with Michael Rothman in Halloween. It mm -hmm. does John Carpenter's like perfect ending to Halloween dirty by mm -hmm. basically instead of having the evil disappear into the night, like the evil kind of stumbled a few blocks down the road and then got tackled by the cops. Like, eh, not quite the same ending. But I think like Lori's reaction to what happened to her 40 years ago and where she was, like they don't seem like an equal reaction to what she experienced. I think that becomes like the difficulty a little bit. And I'm not saying that you can't have that reaction, please. Like that's not, but I think from like a narrative standpoint as like a movie, you feel like 
that seems like a lot given that she probably experienced a fraction of like what you see happen in like two in H2 yeah. and everything that came after it. So exactly, exactly. We want to talk about um, the secondary victim thing that we were sort of hinting at earlier. Yeah, let's talk about John and Karen. Emphasis mm-hmm. John because he's dreamy. I hope I'm not making anybody uncomfortable by constantly mm-hmm. talking about how I think Josh Hartnett is. But no, I mean if you go back and listen to some of our other episodes, we get hot and bothered by lots of hunks of 80s horror and even early 2000s horror. Um, But so let's talk about the secondary victims um, because we have John played by Josh Hartnett and then we have Karen who's played by... Yes, yes. And I love, well, both of them. I think Mm. they're they're fantastic in life. And I really like them in these movies. Um, I know that a lot of people think that... um, she was underused as Karen, but I kind of liked that she wasn't kind of all over the place, you know? Mm. Yeah, she she gets, I mean, you could say about Judy Greer that she gets underused in every movie that she's yeah. in, you know, but she, I think, I, I liked her in this movie. I think even though she wasn't the star or the central figure, um, when she is on screen, she's getting to play a character that's not like her usual characters, you know? She has more depth to her. And I do love her gotcha moment. Like that made me like her so much. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, like she, she's actually acting pretty, reacting reasonably through most of the movie. But when the shit hits the fan, she steps up to the plate. That's a really mixed metaphor. But yeah, uh, yeah I, I really like her character and performance in this. And she uses, like what I love about that moment so much is she uses the stereotypical helplessness that he is expecting because that's what we saw in the first movie. And I'm not giving any kind of shade on the first movie because that's probably how I would react if I hadn't been preparing for this for my whole Mm -hmm. life. Um, But she uses that and then she turns it against him. And it just, that moment, oh, it makes me cry every time. I love it. And and she's wearing a Christmas sweater. I think that's just such a small little... Yeah, like she's such a wholesome mom that wears Christmas sweaters all year round the way that I wear Halloween t-shirts all year round. And she's a therapist. (laughs) Yeah. And I think that's one of the really interesting things. I think we see that happen. I know we're going to talk about Scream soon in one of our episodes, but like I find it interesting that characters that go back and like I've been traumatized, I've worked through it, how do I give back so I can help others? Nancy and... Uh, a Nightmare on Elm Street Dream Warriors goes yes. back. And, yes, yes. Yeah. So. Mm-hmm. She's very well, interested in sleep therapy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, she has some past experiences. Um, yeah, and I think the Christmas sweater thing, I think that's almost like a defiance against Halloween kind mm-hmm. of thing. You know, mm-hmm. like, no, I'm not like, I bet she doesn't eat that tiny candy. She's like, no, this is mm-hmm. this is not for me, which I think is a manifestation of that, that secondary trauma. Yep. Yeah, exactly, yeah. I mean, because even though she didn't, like you were saying, Mike, even though she didn't experience it directly, she's got her mother's associations. Mm -hmm. And she states at one point, I've spent my whole life trying to get past the paranoia that Mm -hmm. she instilled in me from a young age. And that is like, you know, that is a really cruel thing to do to to a child, even if it was with good intentions. You know, you Mm -hmm. can you can be have the best of intentions and still massively screw up your kid, Um, which is why I'm not a parent. Yeah. (laughs) One of the... um, I think even as a parent, I feel like I'm forever going to screw up my daughter. Um, yep. Sounds like you're doing yet. great. I haven't yet, but, you know, there's still time <laughs> if I'm lucky. Um, one of the things I really like about Halloween 2018, and I mentioned this when I said about closure, is that 
I think part of Lori's problem is there's never an opportunity for closure because Michael is behind locked walls for 40 years and she can't really confront him. Um, you see in H2O, like when she realizes this is my opportunity to stop running, she takes it. And in 2018, she doesn't have that opportunity to have that closure. So you see like when she realizes that he's out, she, bam, goes into like Sarah Connor mode. Um, she goes into Ripley mode. Like she's basically, she's ready to go. And where her daughter had been like cool and calm and collected and being like, there's really nothing to worry about here. Her daughter starts to understandably freak out when her own daughter is missing and they don't know where she is. And you see her, instead of feeding into that, she basically brings her out of it. And she's the one because she knows like, this is the opportunity. This is what I have worked towards for so long. Mm-hmm. And I'm ready. And it's like, she's not afraid of it happening anymore. It's mm-hmm. happening and yeah. she knows what to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a, I think sometimes I find with myself, like I, I fare better in um, high stress situations than I do. And I'm just like, mm-hmm. my anxiety is like spiraling. Like I'd much always rather confront the thing than be in that no. state of anticipation. Um, I did have a question for Mike. I, I mean, I was thinking about what we're discussing right now, just how, the PTSD that Lori has impacts her family, her two, you know, parallel universe families. Mm -hmm. And if you were treating either of these families or these family dynamics in either timeline, um, maybe what would you suggest to help them out? How would you approach this with Lori or her children? Yeah, it's hard because I've written a lot more about H2O um, and I had like a chapter ready to go for this project I'm working on. And then they announced Halloween 18 and I'm like, you fucking sons of bitches. <laughs> going to have to rewrite this now. Um, so I would look at the way that Lori's trauma has impacted her family. We talk about secondary trauma. Basically what's occurring are friends or really loved ones and family members are showing the same symptoms of PTSD that the affected person is, even though they have not been directly exposed to the event, that just by hearing about it um, over and over, or by experiencing how their loved ones are experiencing it, um, they almost, it's almost like a contagion. It's almost like an infection. And that's actually talked about in one of the studies, like secondary trauma described as like an emotional contagion, that the proximity to the affected is leading to the transmission of those symptoms. Um, And there hasn't been a lot of studies in this area, um, but as you could guess, it tends to manifest itself more in women than it does men. And they believe in part that is because of social conditioning and women being told you should be nurturing, you should be caring, you should be more empathetic, you should be able to be in tune with feelings and look out for others and men being socially conditioned to kind of repress their feelings and look out for themselves first. So in the case of Lori, I mean, I don't think that comes as as a surprise, but also there does need to be a lot more research done in that area too. Um, Lori's trauma in both movies exhibit themselves through hypervigilance and through control. In Halloween 2018, you see a lot of disordered thought Um, thinking that like, oh, it would be totally okay to teach this young child how to shoot a firearm. And uh, it would be totally okay to keep her locked off from the rest of the world and continuously 
expose her to this story of Michael Myers, the boogeyman, and not realizing that's traumatizing her to the point. And I have to imagine that like a teacher probably stepped in and saw things. I mean, this is conjecture in my part, but being that teachers and educators uh, are mandated reporters, they may have seen something that would necessitate like a call from the state and then um, her being removed from the home at that point. So you're seeing like these thought distortions that are really going about. So that'll be the main thing you'd want to tackle. Um, one of the ways that PTSDs really shows itself is through these constant constant thought distortions. Now, they could be negative thoughts about yourself. They could be exaggerated thoughts about the event. They could be like self-blaming or victim blaming. Like this happened to me because I'm a bad person. I've deserved this to happen to me. I should have prevented it. So there's a lot of self-blame. There's also, enough, you know? yeah. And there's also a lot of detachment from others and the ability to like form these close bonds or form this kind of love for others and empathy for others. And you cannot experience things like satisfaction, happiness, or joy for any extended periods of time. Um, I would say that in the case of H2O and Halloween 2018, I think there is a lot of family love there. Like for all of the issues that are manifesting themselves through the nightmares, through the day drinking, through the hypervigilance, through the need, the need to be controlling, I don't think there's any ever any doubt that like Lori loves her son in Halloween 20 and her granddaughter and her daughter in Halloween 2018. The son-in-law feels like she could take her leave. Yeah. Um, and he's summarily killed just like... Go ahead, Jen. Sorry, I interrupted you. To be honest, I could take him or leave him, too. He was the whiz in Seinfeld, I, man. Nobody he's really he was. Yeah, and he um, was also, he's been in a, that's one of those actors that's been in a ton of stuff. Yeah. I always think of him as the guy from Carnival, that show mm -hmm. that lasted two seasons on HBO. Yeah. He's great. But yeah. in this, he's so obnoxious in this movie. And then he's just like killed unceremoniously. Just, just, yeah. He's just done. And no one seems to care. I know. They're like, you eh. Know, they're like, eh. Where's, what's know. his face? Um, so if I were treating it, I think I would, you know, there would be a lot of family therapy. I think group therapy in the case of Lori might go could show her that she's not alone. Um, like group therapy and trauma has, have, they have been, group therapy has shown to have like a lot of impact, a lot of positive impact for persons that have experienced trauma, because a lot of times you feel like you're experiencing this alone. Um, you know, one thing I often say to clients is like, everything that's happened to you in some way has happened to others as well. Like millions of other people feel depressed or anxious or experience trauma. What makes it unique is the way that you experience, the way you feel it, the way you react at that point. Um, but you're not going through this alone, that there are others, there are others that are there. And it's tricky because you want to have empathetic talk versus dismissive talk. And you don't want to engage in like, well, it's happened to others or it's not that bad or like, oh, you think that's bad. I know a person where like, let me tell you about Sally and Texas Chainsaw Massacre. If you want yeah. to hear someone <laughs> yeah. who's really fucked up, then we'll talk about her. <laughs> like you wouldn't bring that up in counseling Lori. You wouldn't talk about Sally or, you know, um, Amy and Friday. Yeah, Amy's I, I do want to see a, a final girls group therapy session though. Now I really just the mm -hmm. circle yeah. of, of Lori, Sally. Yeah. Oh, right. that, that's, that's like a fun. princesses only yeah. all of our final girls. Yes. Oh, can we, we do that? Can we do yeah. final girl Barbies? Let's we can have definitely a whole merch, do that. merch line in my head now. 
with, <laughs> with Lori in particular, I would probably do like a lot of like guided therapy um, and exposure therapy where you would very slowly expose her to events around Halloween. So you would start just through talk, like, okay, what level are you at right now? You're at a five, you're good. What does an eight look like? And then once you get to an eight, you do some guided imagery, you do some breathing, you do some meditation, you bring it back down. Um, and over time, you would add more and more to it. Maybe you would have like a little pumpkin on your desk and she would look at the pumpkin. Um, maybe you would have some Halloween candy. Maybe you would like do guided imagery where like, okay, you're alone in your home. It's Halloween night, the lights go out. You hear, you pick up the phone, there's no, the phone line is dead. And you would walk through a nightmare scenario, basically. And you would check in with her over and over again, where are you at right now? And when you get to a point where you can no longer keep your composure, and like, this is too much, then you start bringing yourself down. And you would do this, and you would need a lot of training, and you need a lot of work. Like, you would not jump right into that. You know, maybe you would have her hand out Halloween once she gets in advance, like, okay, tonight you're going to hand out candy for Halloween. And maybe you do a mock run. Maybe you have Josh and his like super nineties buddies, <laughs> like on like maybe by Labor Day, they get in costume and they like do trick or treating just for her. You know, I don't know. Like that's an idea. Um, I would watch that movie. Um, I want to see what their late nineties right. costumes would be like what pop culture things they're dressing. would be, in. you know, Dress as a sweater and I'll be happy. Oh, for yes. God's sake. Um, <laughs> so, um, it is like a sweat box in this room. Otherwise, I would throw on some sweaters, you know? Like, okay. Yes. It always um, gets hot when we're recording and then my ears yeah. start sweating under the headphones. When you start talking Chris Sarandon in 1985, it definitely gets hot in the room. So yeah. Absolutely. That's, Josh Hart in 1998. It's. Yep. It's, it's something else. Um, so, yeah. I would. I would say that kind of like that kind of therapy, I would probably try to work with uh, in terms of like working with Lori in particular. Well, and so I had a note about the podcasters because they seemed, I, I don't know if I just reacted to them as very condescending because it seems like they're suggesting some of those things. They're like, well, don't you just want to go talk to him? Like, this is your chance for closure. And, and it's like just kind of not understanding that you can't just jump into that kind of like what you mm -hmm. were just saying like there's no foundation you don't know her like you can't suggest these kind of things without understanding how triggering even just mentioning that would be and, and you can tell she's very triggered yeah. when they're there like you can just see yeah. on her face where she like kind of turns to the door and is like get fuck out of my right. house like exactly also we need to get a patreon up so we can start tossing around like two thousand dollars or interviews as podcasters i like. know no we're journalists we don't pay yes, for so. whatever yeah i um i have interesting feelings about them because i do feel like the the woman i can't remember her name but she is a little more understanding and the guy mm -hmm. wants to like get his episode and he's like i don't care how much i traumatize her um, for this to happen because that would be extremely traumatizing. And one of the things that um, when we were talking about getting closure, one of the things that I've had to accept in order to kind of move forward is just accepting that I'm never going to get closure. Um, and I've gotten to the point now where I don't want it because I don't think that it would give me what I want it to give. And maybe that's a way of leading into the other thing that bothers me about Halloween 
um, because there are these iconic shots that we keep seeing and they're in reversals. And I have a lot of conflicted feelings about this because I, there's part of me that fucking loves it. And I'm like, when her face appears behind him, I'm like, yes, that is awesome. And even like <clears throat> seeing her standing across the street, like I love them all. But one of the things that I had to deal with um, before I even realized any of this was happening was when I started dating people, I would find myself kind of um, taking on some of the behaviors that my husband or my first husband had had and none of the, the violent behaviors, but like I would hang up on people or like I would be very kind of distant and it like it was how I think I understood having power in a relationship again. Mm -hmm. And it drove, like those relationships didn't last because I was driving them away and it made me feel good for a moment. But then I just felt bad because I was, I had pushed that person away and I didn't have that support anymore. And as much as I love seeing Laurie doing all of those things and getting that empowerment, like for my own life, that's not the power that I want. The power that I want is to move on and to start a new relationship um, and to feel comfortable doing the things that I didn't get to do then, not the things that he did, you know? Yeah. And I read those shots. I mean, I think that they were great for cinematic effect, having the, the, the sort of power dynamics reversed via these emblematic shots. But um, I think that there was a theme going on in the movie about, you know, the evil infecting you and you becoming like Lori's becoming a bit of a monster and and dr i keep wanting to call him dr sapperstein from like rosemary's baby um dr sir what the hell sartain. Sartain, dr right? sartain yes uh he gives this speech about like i'm very interested in what it feels like to be evil to like what satisfaction he gets from killing mm -hmm. and i felt that that was like a thematic red thread that wasn't fully interrogated in the movie but it was definitely something i feel like they were trying to express that didn't quite get there for me but uh, it was an interesting idea all the same yeah and because i feel like that's what laurie is trying to do with those is she's trying to get the power and and i guess it plays into the control too it's like you can't i'm not going to be the victim anymore i'm now going to be the attacker and so one of the things i talked about in therapy was the drama triangle which is victim um, perpetrator and rescuer mm -hmm. and you like it, a lot of times in relationship you'll shift and you might be the perpetrator I can't remember if that's exactly the word um, bad guy is I kind of how I understand it is um, but in order to be a victim you have to have a bad guy and in order to be the bad guy you have to have a victim and in order to be a rescuer you have to have a victim and so it's just like this web of roles that we play rather than just like kind of breaking out of that and starting to kind of move forward you know mm -hmm. yeah i think that's a really interesting way i would like to see how that gets applied to all these characters in the throughout the halloween franchise right. or you probably could see that throughout horror movies in general really yeah well and actually that was kind of when we started talking about this idea for this podcast i was like well maybe that can be a section and we can kind of put roles in but i felt like it was maybe a little too limiting yeah. um but i mean like in the sequels, we know there's going to be sequels and I'm just going to hold out hope that Josh Hartnett's going to be in an H2O sequel. Um, well, but like, every, 
I wanted Paul Rudd to return as Tommy Doyle. Yes, and hey. Paul Rudd is a big crush for me, so I'll, oh, get, yeah. I'll get horny. I'll get horny. <laughs> She'll do it, guys. She really mm-hmm. will. Just you wait and see. <laughs> he Don't looks like such that. a baby in Halloween. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, oh my he god. He still like, does. He hasn't aged. I know. I know. He's, he looks. It's, it pisses me off. It's upsetting. Mm-hmm. I know. Oh, he's a no one Deserves to stay that handsome. Um, yeah. Um, one of the things I really like about Halloween 18 in terms of like how it portrays trauma is it really portrays trauma is like trauma doesn't really care about you. Like the trauma is the trauma. And I, you know, we asked getting back to like treatment, like you can almost look at narrative therapy as well, which is this idea that like you treat the problem as the problem and you externalize it. Because I think a lot of times, especially with things like trauma, you tend to internalize them and they become a part of you. Like I am a victim. This is who I am. It's part of my identity. And the idea behind it is you, externalize that trauma and you remove it from your core identity and you look at it almost like you would look at like a Rubik's cube and you're like, how do I solve this puzzle? But in 2018, like Michael Myers doesn't remember who Laurie Strode is, like doesn't care about her in the slightest. Like he essentially ends up at her house because like Dr. Sartain, it's a tough economy out there. It's a gig economy. He's given him an Uber lift right to the house. Like that's how he ends up there. But he doesn't remember Lori. Like Lori for 40 years has internalized this trauma and never really had a way to deal with it or, or let it go of her. Like she holds it so tight to her. And then when she's confronted with it, it just shrugs her off. Like it comes after her. Michael comes after her in the third act, A, because it kind of, you have to, it's a movie, but also because like, oh, it's another person who's in front of me that I can kill. And he keeps coming after her because like she's attacked him and he's like, well, now I'll go after her, but he doesn't care about her in the slightest. So your trauma doesn't care about you. Whereas in Halloween H2O, it's all about like, it's like the shark in Jaws. Like it keeps coming, it keeps coming, it keeps coming. And I just don't feel like that's how it works. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's that's again where my my uh, feelings for these movies are constantly ping ponging because I agree that the idea of a trauma that doesn't give a shit about you is much more thematically relevant and interesting mm-hmm. and mature of an idea. But it, I also like Halloween two is definitely my favorite movie of the franchise, and mm-hmm. to erase the like brother sister connection mm-hmm. and all that is like, I don't know, like it's just not as fun. Yeah, you know? I agree. I if you took that one thing out of how you could just have halloween one halloween two and then jump into this movie you take out and even if you just like you know like screw it we're gonna say like oh yeah like the nurse was mistaken like she you know she read the wrong file or it was a rumor or she didn't have the right info whatever it is like just take that out somehow but yeah halloween two is so good yeah it's the one that like if you're at a party like that's the one you put on it has the best scares it has the best pacing Mm-hmm. I don't know. I love it. Well, and what I love about Halloween too is that we see the next day, you know, and when we're talking about Laurie in New Halloween or 2018, like I wonder what her next day is going to be like if she, because I mean, her whole life has been trying to kill Michael for 40 years. And what do you do next? Whereas I feel like, and I know that we're going to see sequels and I uh, just, I don't know, I'm crossing all my fingers and my toes. Um, but like, I feel like with H2O the next day, she would have something to come back to. 
Whereas yeah. in new Halloween, I mean, she's literally burned her house down, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, and I don't want to take away from that because it's kind of an awesome moment, but it just, that's, that's the difference I see between the two of them is she hasn't tried to build anything else for her life. And, um, Laurie and H2O has. And at the end of H2O, she gets a very clear, just, you know, um, closure because the head is off. Like, it's kind of like staking the heart of the vampire. Like, he's he's down for the count. Unless, like, his reanimated body parts are flapping around. I don't know. But in in this, it's still just ambiguous enough to leave her with a shred of doubt that he might still be out there. So I feel like, you know, 18 Lori will continue to live in fear because it's all she knows and she hasn't you know, unless she gets a lot of help at that point from her daughter, the husband is dead, you know, maybe they all go live in an apartment. Yeah. Uh, three generations. Yeah. Well, and in H2O, like he has been gone for 20 years. So like she, at least she knew where he was in 2018 and she could call and check to make sure if he was still there. But I just can't imagine how, how fragile that would make you just knowing he could be around every corner. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, And so one of the things I did want to talk about, and it might kind of seg into other mental health issues we see in this movie, but I want to talk about her drinking and her dreams because that was, the drinking is the big thing that stood out to me in both movies. And we see, I can't, I think to kind of varying degrees, um, like when I see it in New Halloween, it seems to be like, she doesn't seem like she's drunk all the time. Whereas in H2O, it's like, they even mentioned she's a functioning alcoholic. She's got that. She like sneaks the wine glass, um, which I love that scene where she, I don't love that she is drinking to excess, but I just love the way she orders it from that waiter. She's like, yeah, just give it to me right now. Um, but that was something that I dealt with too. And I have, um, had an addiction to alcohol as a way of self-medicating. And I think it was just in the last couple of years when I really started to understand why I was drinking so much. And another like side of that was my first husband, like when he was violent, a lot of times it was because of drinking. And so I think that was a little bit more of like that taking the power back. Like this is how I become powerful too, but it is definitely something we see Laurie struggle with. And I think happens with a lot of people that are suffering from PTSD, especially if it's not diagnosed. Yeah. Yeah. You got to blunt the pain and it's, but yeah, if you're, if you will, everyone will find mm-hmm. a way to self-medicate um, if they're not getting the appropriate treatment. Right. That's kind of the moral of the story there, I think. And I think it says like in, it, she says in H2O, like I've tried every sort of therapy. Like yeah. she even says like, I've done like everything that's out there. And it just like, she just either didn't find one that worked or, you know, I, another thing I'll say is like, I can't work harder than you. Like you have to be yeah. committed. Um, I was going to say it challenged her too. Right. Much. There's mm-hmm. like can't versus won't. Like if someone says, well, I can't change. I'm like, well, are you telling me that you can't change or you won't change? If you won't change, we're going to just kind of like end things here because what's the point? If you yeah. can't change and that we can work on, that's something we can build on over time. You can say, I can't change right now. We'll change like that for two words. Um, yeah, the day drinking is, you know, like you said, she's a lot more functional in H2O. Like she's a lot more, she's very successful. I mean, you don't become a headmistress of a school by slouching. She's kind of like, you could see her based on who Lori was in 1978, like the overachiever academically, you could see her easily going into that role and you can see the appeal of it because like you said, it's a gated community for her mm-hmm. and there's a guard right out in front and she's like living on campus. Um, so, and she's in control of 
the whole school. So not only can she like be hyper vigilant about John, she can be hyper vigilant about the hundreds of white kids that go to the school. Yes. Because there's, as far as I know, like there is not a single, yeah. like queer people and people of color do not exist in H2O, which is. Yeah. Other than LL, well, other than LL Cool J and his oh, that's true. Life. Yeah, on the phone, right? <laughs> Which I love so, her. <laughs> but for students, yeah, yeah. like they don't. Yeah, so. that is a whitest student mm-hmm. body. So yeah. white is the driven snow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> but she gets to control everything, and she can, you know, like I think Minor and uh, Jamie Lee point out in the commentary, like there's that bottle of vodka hidden away. No, it's not hidden. Like it's really out in the open. Like she's not necessarily hiding who she is. Right. Yeah, she tries to because she orders the wine before he comes back mm-hmm. but i feel like she like she's not trying that hard because at a in, certain point like if you're yeah. altered all day you're, yeah. you don't hide so much and at her house it, yeah maybe at home she feels like this is my safe place i don't have to necessarily hide it here because like within these four walls like nothing bad can happen to me here i can control this environment where it was like, also you're not, mm-hmm. It was also like date night, you know, it's like drinking is normal in this context. But if you're downing two glasses of Chardonnay at a, at a casual lunch, Mm -hmm. maybe they'll look at you askance. Well, and so I wanted to ask about her dream at the beginning, because that's the first time we see her in H2O. And when I was taking notes the first time I wrote that it was a flashback, but if it's a, it can't be a flashback if it's in a dream, is that right? Or am I just kind of splitting hairs? Because she has, because <laughs> she, what I, one of the things I loved, because we see that closet bo- in both movies, we see her having that dream, dream back, maybe I'll call it, um, or a drash back. Mm-hmm. Um, well, and I will say earlier when you listed the symptoms, dreams and flashbacks were listed as separate symptoms. Mm-hmm. So I, I do think that, I mean, but they're basically serving the same function that's uh, to, to you physiologically, right? right? Like you are having persistent thoughts and memories of this event that manifest either in your dreams or in waking life. Either yeah. way, it sucks ass. You know? And there are there are trauma-related dreams. Like there mm-hmm. are, I want to call them, there are, there's idiopathic dreaming, which is basically like you will dream about um, having a test and forgetting to study for it and showing up to class without any clothes on. And it would be about like stress. There are stresses in your life, but the dreams aren't necessarily about those. But there, um, PTSD can manifest itself through dreams and you specifically dream about the events that are the triggers that triggered your PTSD. So it's totally within the realm that she would continuously have the dream about the closet from, and I love that touch, by the way. I thought it was one of the things I really enjoyed about H2O, like that little flashback to um, 1978 in that particular moment. Um, So you can, trauma can manifest itself through your dreams in that way. And it can be very specifically about the events that trigger it. Well, and that, because that's one of the things, I don't know if this was necessarily intentional, but that dream ends with like her son. And I think like a picture of Josh Harden before we even know it's her son, it's Mm -hmm. like a knife in the picture or something. Um, And I guess like she knows that he's turning 17 also, or that he is 17. So I wonder if that's just kind of her mind trying to process through things. Um, What's funny, I've been kind of processing through 
a bunch of stuff and these things keep coming up. And I've been having some stress dreams pretty recently too. And one of the things I was talking about in therapy is like, I'm processing it because it's past, it's in the past. And my brain is just kind of bringing it up, not necessarily as a protection, but more of a, like, it feels like a cycling out, you know? And so I mm-hmm. wonder if that's kind of just her brain kind of kicking that trigger a little more forward into her self-conscious because she knows Halloween's coming up and that her mm-hmm. son is 17 now. I like that um, reading of it. Yeah. Uh, and I don't know how intentional that was, but um, is there anything else that we want to talk about, um, about the way both of these movies uh, represent PTSD? Is there anything we haven't covered? I think we've covered everything that I wanted to address. Okay. Um, so let's talk now about um, other mental health topics we see here. Um, we're not going to dive into these. We're not going to really go into a lot of deep um, talk and discussion, but there are things that we just didn't want to let go by um, and it may be fodder for future episodes. Um, and one of the things, the two things that I wanted to mention was, is substance abuse, which we already talked about a little bit. Um, but there's also a date rape joke in H2O, um, which I don't think would happen if they made the movie now. I feel like that's just a very dated um, type of humor. Um, so I, we do see uh, mention of sexual assault in um, H2O. Mm-hmm. Late, late 90s and early 2000s media loved a date rape joke. Like, I feel like that was just like such a classic punchline of that era. And it was like, there were, it was in songs. It was... It was <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and this is a Weinstein produced movie, correct? Yeah, this and the screen movies. When the Weinstein names come up at the end, I'm like, oh, oh, and then I think mm-hmm. about all the young actresses in these films, and I'm just like, because of Rose McGowan mm-hmm. and Scream is a good example, who was one of the yeah. people who came out. Mm-hmm. So um, we are watching and noticing these crimes. So, right. Yeah. Um, for me, I think that, you know, there were just a few things that came out as themes, which is institutional treatment of the mentally ill. Um, these, men, you know, hospitals for the criminally insane kind of come up again and again. And I feel like that would be an interesting rabbit hole to go down one day. Um, psychopathy and how we perceive that this idea that someone is just pure evil, um, that, you know, and that, com- that coming from doctors, obviously mm-hmm. it is played for a theme throughout these films. But if this was real life, I'd be like, hmm. I've written a lot about Dr. Loomis being the worst psychiatrist. <laughs> yeah. Movie history. Even if Donald Pleasance is Pleasance, Pleasance, Donald the Pleasance. Even if he is great, I like that. This sucks. Oh, I'm sorry. I my last thought was: Is Michael Myers truly a serial killer, or is he a spree killer? Hmm. And then I freeze frame, and then I fall out of frame. Mm -hmm. That's it. Those are my thoughts. That would be a, a true crime, I think, definition based on how long the killer. Yeah, it has between killings, right? Because like a serial killer, is, he also doesn't feel like he's motivated like a serial killer. Serial killers are all like little fucking weirdos who want to like come their pants from killing people or whatever. Um, have you and, seen Rob Zombie's Halloween? <laughs> I, I actually have not because I, I don't like Rob Zombie as a director, but I will watch it at one point. I just, he's never been in the mood. But I, a spree killer is somebody who just sort of goes and quickly kills mm-hmm. a bunch of people, which is more, in my opinion, what Michael Myers is. Although, again, he's more of an entity than a man. So, mm-hmm. whatever. Yeah. Those are my things. Um, Mike, what about you? So, I had down here, like, for Michael Myers' antisocial personality disorder. I think that's a fairly obvious one. Yeah. Um, that would be the real big one for me. And then, also, paranoia. 
um, which we covered pretty extensively on our episodes on The Burbs and Fright Night together uh, in Sinister. So if you want to go back to the archives and listen to them, they are two fantastic episodes. Sweater talk in this. Yes. yes. Pure sweater talk. The entire I think story. that's where sweater talk was born. I think yeah. it was sinister. It was with, with uh, uh, Ethan Hawke. Ethan Hawke, yeah. Um, but paranoia in that, like, Lori feels the need to, like, lock herself behind this compound, even though she knows, like, he's locked up and um, in his way. You know, it makes more sense to a degree in H2O, um, but the degrees to which Lori has changed her life, like changing her name, um, all of that, like, you know, the paranoia is definitely there. So, and to your point, Laura, like you said, like one of the problems with the movie is like, she's kind of proven right. Like, oh, you know, like good thing she did all those things or who knows what would have happened. And I think there can be a happy medium there that I think so too. And like, I like what you were saying, Laura, at the beginning, like if we just kind of married these two together, I think it would be something that I could mm -hmm. really kind of take yeah. out, take a lot out of. And I think my brain kind of does that because mm -hmm. I do enjoy both of them. Yeah. <laughs> the ori um, original idea was like John Carpenter and Deborah Hill were going to write and direct H2O. And the story was the same. Like it was going to be about Laura, Lori dealing with this, but um, Carpenter wanted like $10 million and they told him like, no. And then Deborah Hill dropped off uh, and Steve Miner got the gig and Steve Miner's good. I mean, like he, you know, did a great job in Friday the 13th part two, um, part three, you know, um, he's competent, but he's not someone that I think is an author's vision. He's just like, all right, here's the script. We're going to put it in front of us. And I don't think he's like someone that's going to dive into the meat and potatoes of like the themes. And and that's, yeah. And also like, that's what I dislike about the movie is the craft of it. You know, going from having watched, um, you know, the, the art direction and the cinematography mm -hmm. in the first two Halloweens. And then you go into this that looks like every other late nineties slasher movie yeah. that has lost all of, even the, the um, mm -hmm. score is like, they take the synth, main through line and then mix it with these like orchestral mm -hmm. hits and it just sounds so generic yeah. and it just takes it takes all the like artistry out of the franchise even though i like right. the story a lot so right. yeah i think competent is a good word for it mm -hmm. but it doesn't mm -hmm. rise above that and exactly I, th I think it wastes michelle williams character like because you're yeah. given a lot of a lot of hints that she's going to play a much larger role. And then she basically just writes off in the back of an SUV, you know, like she's right. really like, it's not, it's not her movie. Um, but like, do you remember anything about Jody elite, uh, you know, Jody Lynn Keefe's character? I can't even remember the other dude, you know, except that they yeah. were perpetually horny. Um, yeah. You know, I and like, how much I hated her. Kid. Yeah. It just, the, when, you know, Adam Arkins, like school counselor walks into their room and they're overly familiar, like, oh, we're going to go score some drugs and, like, you know, go have, like, unprotected sex. He's like, oh, well, I'm going to get my nipples pierced. Like, no, like, teens don't talk like that. Um, it was it was so, the again, that 90s, like, mm -hmm. hacky writing where Kevin like, Williamson. teenagers are mature yeah. and we're edgy. Like, yeah. I can't And, and I like Kevin Williamson. I love Scream. It's probably my second favorite series besides A Nightmare on Elm Street. But, like, he just has this Aaron Sorkin disease where he thinks like, I don't know if he's ever hung out with an actual teenager working with like middle schoolers that are right on the cusp of high school. I can tell you that children do not talk like this. 
if they yeah. can string more than six words together and it's coherent, then they're ahead of the curve in 2020. And right. Scream gets away with that kind of stilted or like, I guess, like hyper stylized dialogue mm-hmm. because it's satire. It's like pokey, you know, it just mm-hmm. feels like you're, you can, ex- you can like suspend your disbelief in the Scream franchise. Whereas mm-hmm. this, it's like essentially like we're just entering yeah. organically into these people's lives and this is how yeah. they talk. Like it's, uh, what's so interesting about Halloween is it really owes a lot as a franchise it owes like being resuscitated, I think, to Wes Craven twice because Nightmare on Elm Street comes out in 1984. And by that time, Halloween 1, 2, and 3 are out. There are no more plans or any more movies. Elm Street's a cash cow between, by the time the fourth one comes out, it's raking in the dough, like even more than the Friday the 13th movies. All of a sudden, there's like a brief revival. You have like Halloween 4, 5, and then a quick break for 6. And then... After the curse of Michael Myers, like Halloween is done as a franchise. Like no one knows what to do with it. It's going down Hellraiser territory where it's going to be like, let's just churn out a bunch of like straight to video movies and then scream hits. And all of a sudden, Jamie Lee Curtis is like, we're coming up on 20 years. Maybe we can do something. Um, And Kevin Williamson gets an uncredited rewrite of the script it's like but all the you know Wes Craven's success between Elm Street and Scream I don't know if you have any more Halloween movies if those movies don't break as big as they do and kickstart another slasher revival of sorts yeah and I'm here for it because those are when I think about slashers those are my favorite ones mm-hmm. as much as I love like the older ones are kind of my comfort yeah but like the ones that have my heart are like those 90s ones for me it's the early the early 80s slashers or what does it i will watch the 90s slashers and there's some very good ones um Mm -hmm. but i think they like this could be a pg-13 movie if you take away some f-bombs it could well and like one of the things that disturbs me a lot is jody's not jody um friend's death where Mm -hmm. her kind of mm, sure sets me but i think that i have been watching the edited for tv version and mm-hmm. it was on amc and they just cut out some of the language and it's yeah. still okay you know um but let's talk about um speaking of kind of some other movies let's talk about other movies we see ptsd represented in mm-hmm. like our last section we're not going to go too deeply into these movies but we want to mention them in case you're looking for more ptsd representation um one of the things i see ptsd in us that might be a particular reading for me um a lot of it has to do with i think driving and cars um but i see a lot of it in us and that i i think will likely be a future episode one day yeah, um, I love, love that movie and i totally agree uh-huh. with that read of it yeah um i see this a lot in scream um and we'll put a pin in that um and then terminator 2 which i believe is history's greatest movie and then we also i think see this in dark fate a uh, terminator dark fate which i also have a lot of complicated feelings about um, speaking of a movie that I have such a hard time letting <laughs> events go in that movie. Um, but yeah, so those are some of the ones that I see it in. Um, Mike, what other movies have a connection to PTSD that you see? So, you know, I mean, you see it in a lot of slasher movies overall when they bring back the um, final girl from the previous movie and then they yeah. basically unceremoniously kill her off very quickly afterwards. But I think you see it with... Right, yeah. um, Right, you see it with Kristen um, from 
uh, Nightmare on Elm Street from Dream Warriors to the Dream Master, like she's unable to let it go. Uh, you see it with Alice in Friday the 13th Part 2. You see it in I Know What You Did Last Summer, where the kids are all affected by what happened the summer before. There's actually, and I think I tried to remember this movie last time that we spoke. There's this little indie movie called uh, Last Girl Standing that came out a few years ago. And it, um, it starts where most slasher movie ends. It starts with the final two persons getting hunted down by the killer. And one of them is killed. And through, I forget through what mechanism, but the... You're essentially you're Michael Myers or Jason Voorhees. He is killed off in the first five minutes of the movie. And then the rest of this movie follows the last remaining woman, the girl who survived. So you see, like she sees him everywhere. And you see her like struggling to hold a job. You see her struggling to maintain relationships. Um, and then as the movie goes on, like this new friend group that she makes on this new social circle, they start dying off. Um, and she's trying to figure out like, is he back? What is it? What's going on right now? Um, it's not a great movie, but it's a very interesting portrayal of PTSD because it really like picks up where most movies end and then follows it. Boy, does that ever sound like a Jen movie? <laughs> Yeah. I mean, it's not great. I'm not going to promise you're going to get like a world beater of a movie, um, but it might be of like, it might be of some interest. Yeah. Laura, do you have any that uh, you stand out to you? I will admit that I forgot to think about this prior to <laughs> speaking at this moment in time. However, um, I mean, we, we picked some for previous episodes. Um, we've already talked about a lot, but the descent that we that we covered already on PTSD is like one of the first that always jumped to my mind when I think about the portrayal of PTSD. And then of course, there's the movie that I try to cram into every subject matter that we cover, which is the Babadook. Um, I would I think there's an argument that her her the central character in that film is is dealing with PTSD and. Um, I think you could probably get an interesting read of this in a lot of the the rape revenge films of like last house on the left i spit on your grave and then also revenge um because th that's kind of like i mean it's happening in a compressed timeline but i think there's an argument there to say that it's a it's a i mean obviously it's an exploitative look at at it but it, it's like how a woman gets traumatized and then fucking takes it out on her victimizers right. um so i think that that could have some some interesting legs to it i'm sure there's others and i'm kicking myself for not thinking about it more but um well, yeah, there's one know. that I thought about um, just kind of as we were talking, and I'm not sure like in the future timeline, because I saw it at a festival and it's not widely available yet, but it's called Lucky. Mm -hmm. And I just fell in love with it. Um, very Jen movie. Um, it's not going to be for everybody, but it is a really unique take on slashers and um, and like the, the man kind of man. I don't want to spoil it um, or go any further, but if you're interested in kind of a, a really on the nose manifestation of PTSD, kind of like the Babadook, it's got a Babadook-esque kind of conceit to oh. it. And I, mm -hmm. I just adored it. Um, and I think it's coming to shutter soon. So kind oh, cool. of- Keep your eyes, but it's called Lucky. And if you hear about it, check it out immediately. And it's like 80 minutes, I think, too. That so. sounds great. I keep hoping more stuff from all these festivals will get dumped on Shutter now because we can't, nothing is, we can't really go to theaters, you know. I'm like, give I me know. the fresh horror, you know. No, yeah, we're gonna have to space it out because we're gonna get to a desert at some point where like, I know. we catch up to nothing being made for a while. Um, 
I'm going to have to go back and rewatch The Sopranos or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've been saving West Wing. That might be my um, ending. Well, and speaking of that, um, kind of our comfort shows, um, let's move into our uplifting moment. And this is where I would insert a heart, or not a heart, a heart <laughs> net, um, a harp sound. Um, but our uplifting moment, um, we have talked about some hard things in this episode and kind of like in a therapy session, we don't want you to walk out um, feeling devastated or feeling sad or feeling um, bad in any way. So we want to kind of try to lighten the mood. Um, and so we're going to talk about some of the things we've been doing that make us feel good or that help us when we feel bad. And before we talk about self-care, because I know that can kind of be a loaded term sometimes, um, we want to mention a couple of things. Self-care can be anything that makes you feel good, and that's going to be different for everyone. Sometimes my self-care is eating a tater tot, and sometimes it's like turning the alarm off for five minutes. Um, it doesn't have to be a trip to the spa or a massage or an hour of meditation because we just know that that stuff is not available to everyone. Um, if those are things that are available to you and they help you, that's great, but we don't want to present self-care with any kind of judgment attached to it. Um, we also want to mention that while we think therapy is fantastic and we've talked a lot about it um, and we are big advocates for it, we know that's not available to everyone for a variety of reasons and we want to honor that. Um, ideally, this or any type of medication would be available through effective healthcare, um, but there are resources out there and we're working on compiling a list. Um, there are therapists who work on a sliding scale. There's group therapy. Um, Laura, I think you're going to talk about something in a minute that could play in here. There's virtual therapy. There's a lot of books that can give you a little more insight into your thought process. Um, and if you follow us on social media, and we're going to talk about that in a minute as well, um, we try to post a lot of um, references and resources when we, we see them, when we find them available. Yeah, check um, so, out our Twitter, our Instagram story, all that kind of stuff. We just try to share what we see when we see it. That seems yeah. valuable to people. So yeah, because they're, and I mean, we're all over the country and like some things that work for me are not necessarily going to work for you. Mm -hmm. um, so let's talk about some of the things that are working for us right now. Um, Laura, do you, what grounding or self-care things um, are you doing currently? Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty much doing, these are two things that I've mentioned on the actual show before as well. Um, but they've been the two things that I have found the most helpful re recently. One is called the anti-anxiety notebook. Um, that is what it's called. If you Google the anti-anxiety notebook, you can find it and buy it. It is. Uh, it was something that got advertised to me on Instagram and it's, it's a little on the pricey side for a notebook, but it's, you know, it's cheaper than therapy and it's basically a guided cognitive behavioral therapy tool that lets you very uh, sort of clinically log what you're experiencing and how you're reacting to those events. And then it gives you some tools for reframing your thoughts, which is really the practice that I truly believe everyone needs to do to get over negative thinking patterns. And um, all of us have at least some of them. For me, it's pretty much all of them are inherently <laughs> negative. And so it's, it's a, I think I got to a point in my talk therapy and everything where I needed something like that really concrete. Um, there's also this little website that I uh, encountered called um, youfeellikeshit.com. And it really is basically 
helping you with your executive functioning. That's something I struggle with a lot. Just like I, I can't get out of bed because I'm paralyzed with all the choices that lay ahead of me today and everything just falls into disrepair and ruin. Um, and so this basically takes you step by step, sort of, I think I said the same analogy on the episode, the Halloween episode. It's like taking you through Maslow's hierarchy of needs from like, have you eaten? Uh, have you slept to higher order things that you might be able to do to help you get through your day? Um, and we will post, I think, some links to that if you follow us on socials, because those are two fantastic resources. Um, Mike, what about you? Do you have any grounding or self Yeah, I'll do two things here really quick. So one concrete specific thing I try to do is give myself something to look forward to. Um, I'm a big believer in that. I think it's really hard right now. Like a lot of these days are blending into one another. Um, it seems to be repeating the same pattern every day. So I will often give myself something where I'm like, Hey, this event is coming up in a little bit. Um, I will write it down and carry that with me. And if I'm having a particularly bad day, I'll pull that out and go like, all right, at the end of this week, you know, we're going to a drive-in theater to see like a couple weeks ago was American Werewolf in London and the thing. So I had that. I'm like, if I just get through this day, I'm this much closer to getting to the next one. Um, I do this with students a lot that are having a bad day when they come see me. I will have them write down what are you looking forward to when you go home today? And it might be, I'm going to play Call of Duty with my friends online. It might be, um, you know, like we're going uh, to visit my grandmother this weekend and I can't wait to see her and all my cousins. You know, it might be just looking forward to go home and like binging something on Netflix. So like, great, write it down, put it in your pocket. And every time you're feeling a bit down, like take it out and look at it for a good 10, 15 seconds. Uh, I find that really helpful. I do a lot of cognitive behavioral therapy on my own. Like I play out a lot of scenarios in my mind. And the book I've been using, it's called The Invisible Toolbox, Coping Skills for Everyday Resilience by uh, Michael Miello. I might be mispronouncing that, but it is a number of techniques that start from like very, very easy that have a little bit of an impact to you can progress in, they may be a little bit more difficult to achieve, but they can have like a longer or deeper impact overall. So a lot of what I'll do is like, I will really, if I start, I can tell when I'm getting into a depressive mode because like the negative thoughts just keep coming and I'm getting way better at recognizing them coming in um, and then kind of attacking them and going, all right, if I think this, it's going to make me feel like this. This is how I'm going to behave. And if I behave that way, here's how it's going to impact everyone in my circle. So not just looking at like how it's going to be- impact me, but like my wife, my daughter, my coworkers, my friends, like understanding that like I'm not on an island here, that there are others around me. Um, so I've been, yeah, using that book and attacking the negative thoughts that way. And it seems to really work. Like, I love that. Cause like, I think I, you know, depression and anxiety and all these things make you really navel gaze and turn mm-hmm. inward. So something that forces you to think about the other people around you is great. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that I've talked about before that I struggle with is catching the negative thoughts before they have like 
like spiraled through my brain. Um, and I, I'm, I'm getting better, but I'll go through periods where like when there are a lot more triggers, I just have a really hard time catching it. And so one of the strategies that I've been using, and I've shared about this before, but I, I think it, it really helps. And it's an easy one for me to master is I'll try to think of a number. And I think Mike, you might've mentioned this earlier, like I'm at a five right now. Mm-hmm. How can I get to a four? Yeah. Um, and so just kind of like externalizing it and thinking about it as a number kind of takes a little bit of the charge out Mm -hmm. and it's not something that I have to remember because I know my numbers without having to think like sometimes I've tried to think of like helpful phrases and sometimes they really work like I don't need this thought right now thank you brain that helps sometimes but if I can't catch that in time like a Mm -hmm. number is something I can I okay how how many times will it take for me to breathe to get myself from an eight to a seven um and that's helped me out a lot um one of the self-care things that I've been doing I talked before about doing morning pages um, and I'm still doing those, although I'm not doing three pages anymore. I'm just doing one page partly because my <laughs> I injured my hand, um, not just from writing, but it was part of it. But I've been doing it at night right before I go to bed, just like a tiny little, like I have a tiny little notebook and I write one good memory and one um, thing that I'm grateful for and one thing that made me happy today. And then I just kind of write for the rest of the page. Um, And it's, I like it as a writing tool, but it also kind of gets me in the habit of thinking of those things that I'm grateful for Um, because it is like a muscle that you flex and the more you do it, the more you think, oh, those tater tots were really good. That's a happy thing I have today. I want tater tots now really badly. I know. Sorry. Yeah. I don't know why I my brain. Because <laughs> I think that's two tot references. Mm-hmm. They roll. That's why. Yeah. <laughs> but it also like just kind of is a way of dumping my thoughts out before I go to bed. And I've noticed, well, I don't know if I've been doing it long enough to notice that if I get those thoughts out, they don't, they're not still with me in the morning. Um, maybe that's the goal. So I guess tune back in to see if that actually happens. But those are some of the things that, um, that I've been doing that have been helping me. So as we're kind of wrapping up, I want to say, um, especially if you're new to our show, um, we want this to be a conversation. Um, I think we've kind of approached both of these movies a little bit differently, just based on our own personal experiences. And that is 100% valid and okay. Um, and we want to know what you think, because your experiences are going to be different too. And so you can share any thoughts on this episode with us, either on social media by following at uh, psychoapod on Twitter and Instagram, um, or in one of our two Facebook groups. And before I give the names of those Facebook groups, I just want to give my Facebook hack one more time. If you hate Facebook or you're trying to limit your time, but you still want to participate, um, I created an alternative account and I have no friends. I have a policy about accepting any friends. That way, the only thing I see is things that are in these groups and these groups are private and moderated. Um, and so we really want them to be a safe place to discuss some of these sell, these like tough topics in case you don't want, you don't feel comfortable sharing on Twitter about something like this. Um, Those groups are called the Psychoanalysis Podcast Support Group. That's the official group. Um, We have questions of the day, homework, question prompts, and occasional watch parties. Um, And it's super fun. Um, (laughs) It's super fun, guys. Um, The other group is 
Um, The other group is called Psychoanalysis, a Horror Therapy Family, Um, and that is a listener-created group filled with some truly amazing and supportive people who just have my entire heart. Um, So if you want to join in the conversation, those are great places to do so, and we are going to give a homework question for this episode. We call it homework. We're not going to grade your answer, and you don't have to do it if you don't want to, but it kind of- I will grade you. I'm sorry. (laughs) Uh, but it just kind of is a way to focus discussion because sometimes these conversations are hard to kind of crack into, you know? Um, so our homework question for this episode is which do you prefer H2O or Halloween 2018 and why? And if it's a little bit of both kind of as I think how we're all kind of finding it, um, let us know, what are your thoughts on that? Um, And of course, you can always share your self-care and coping strategies as well um, and any other movies that you see um, PTSD in. Um, So let's talk about what is coming up next, because if you're just joining us, we hope that you will um, subscribe to our podcast because we've got a lot of exciting things coming up. Like and subscribe. (laughs) And review. Oh, yes. And please review. Yeah. that would be fantastic. It really helps um, people find podcasts, especially the newer podcasts like us. Um, so we're continuing in the month of October, we're continuing our theme of PTSD. Um, and we're going to talk about another iconic final girl. Um, we are heading to Woodsboro to talk about Sydney, who is my favorite heart, um, final girl. Um, and that the Scream franchise is my favorite slasher franchise. franchise. Um, I love her so much. I can't say words anymore. Um, we're going to study her arc in Scream 1 through 3. Um, and we're probably going to talk a little bit about Scream 4 as well. Um, so, um, and just like this one, watch those movies because we are going to spoil them because, well, you can't talk about the third one without talking about what happens in the first one. Um, but we've also started doing something I'm really excited about. Um, we've started doing comfort horror mini episodes where we take a little bit of a lighter approach and we talk about our favorite horror movies to watch when we need a little self-care. Um, our episode on Halloween with Michael Rothman from the Losers Club and Halloweenies is out. And we'll also be doing an episode on the Simpsons Treehouse of Horror, which is one of my go-to um, comfort horror Um, So stay tuned to our socials for more information on those. And on Halloween itself, we're going to be dropping an episode on one of our favorite Halloween movies, Trick or Treat, which I'm so excited. Like I'm like dressed as a trick or treat. (laughs) Um, So I'm really excited about all of those. Um, So follow us on socials for more information for when you can see a lot of those coming through your feed or just go ahead and subscribe and you'll get all of it without having to do anything. Um, we are a member of the Consequence Podcast Network. Uh, make sure you go to that website because there are so many um, really cool articles about pop culture, music, um, TV, horror um, there. They also have a lot of fantastic podcasts on that network. Um, Mike, where can people find you online? Oh, they can find me hiding under my desk both days so people don't bother me. Um, I hear but you. You can find me online at Mike underscore Snoonian over on Twitter. Also, you can find me at Pod and uh, Pendulum. That's so. Aside from doing psychoanalysis, I'm the co-host of the Pod and the Pendulum, which is a podcast that covers like horror movie franchises and themes. And we've covered the Halloween series from top to bottom. So you can actually go back and hear more thoughts on H2O <laughs> and Halloween 18 uh, with uh, my co-host Jerry Smith, and we have like different guests on every week. So you can find that if you've enjoyed me here 
I'm a bit insufferable on the other show. That's all right. So (laughs) you can go ahead and find that as well. Laura, where can they find you? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at underalls, U-N-D-E-R-A-L-L-S, like little underpants that you wear on your pants. And on Instagram at Instaglum, which is like Instagram, but sad. I'm also occasionally uh, co-hosting on the Losers Club and Halloweenies. I was primarily on the Nightmare on Elm Street season and a few of the uh, Friday the 13th ones as well. Um, Nightmare on Elm Street is my ride or die franchise. So yeah, that's where I'm at. Mm -hmm. Um, And you can find me on the Losers Club and writing and reviewing for Consequence of Sound. Um, I also have a piece coming up in the slasher edition of We Are Horror magazine talking about Halloween 2018 and another new slasher, The Rental. Um, And you can find me on all of the socials at Jim Ferratu with two N's. Um, And so this was so much fun. Yay. Um, These are two movies that I just have a lot of really cool... uh, (laughs) My thoughts are so cool, guys. Um, I have really cool thoughts. (laughs) Our (laughs) thoughts are outstanding. (laughs) Um, But so this is a character that I just love so much, and I'm really glad that we got to talk about her um, and just kind of the way her life turned. There she is, Lori. Hey, Lori. Um, So we want to give a big thank you to Salem Horror Fest for including us and to everyone who turned in for the show. Thank you so much. We hope to see you again soon. Yes, thank Um, you so much for giving a shit about our little butts. No, it really means a lot. I mean, I love Salem. It's basically, you know, not quite my backyard anymore, but... I just love going, you know, unfortunately we can't go there this year. I, I would have loved, always wanted to go to Salem for Halloween. It's and just fantastic. When this pandemic is over, if we're not all in some kind of mm-hmm. like nightmare dystopia, yeah. we'll be and there. It's just the coolest town in all of Massachusetts. Well, and so, and I'm just really excited that we had the opportunity to do this virtually mm-hmm. too. I, I love that they went ahead and went th- went with the festival. I know it's probably a lot of stressful work, but I'm just really grateful for the opportunity to kind of share what we do and participate yeah. in um, some really outstanding um, content. Um, and so, guys, we came here to chew bubble gum and to take care of ourselves. <laughs> And we're all out of of bubblegum. Bye. See you guys later. (laughs) Consequence Podcast Network.